I'm at the age when people begin to rest on their laurels, but when I looked in my closet and my drawers, I don't have any. Hmm. And I got involved in comedy pretty late. I was stepped into my first 101 improv class in January of 2011. So, I mean, I am getting the start that I'm getting. So, life is interesting. And then when Trump was elected, that just threw everything into a very dystopian high relief of anxiety and fear and disbelief and anger and depression. So I'm like, no, I better find a therapist. <laughs> and I was very fortunate. I found a great therapist through, referred by a friend because I, I put on a little Facebook plea like, help, I'm slipping my moorings, I'm super depressed. And somebody came through who used to take my yoga class, and the therapist is in the same building that I live in. So I just have to go down to the lobby, make a left, and walk a couple of doors down. It's so ideal. Between the comedy, between the yoga, I know, I, I know you do meditation as well. It seems like you should have some good outlets to deal with that stress. I do. But, as I say, I found myself on the couch at 3 a.m., reading tweets, retweeting tweets, getting wound up. And I will say, as a person, I come pre-wound, so I don't actually need any more winding up. And uh, I said, you know who else is doing this at this time? A person I don't want to emulate, and I better yep. get it together. Because, yep. you know, he, he writes most of his masterpieces after 3 a.m., so I, I just didn't want to be that just one little, I just needed one extra help. I mean, sometimes you need a three-legged stool. Sometimes you need the extra support of a four-legged stool. Sometimes you need lumbar support. I just figured I'd get more support. You strengthen your core. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, I don't know about you, but every so often I have that crisis of, of confidence and of, you know, whether I'm if I'm just sending like jokey tweets about Trump onto Twitter, what good that's actually doing. And when the election happens... I had a lot of friends in my life whose and family members whose life were going to be immediately impacted by it. I, I'm, I'm in a relatively privileged, well, I'm in a very, very privileged position. For yeah, the most we're part. sitting in this place. Yeah. We're both privileged just because we're sitting yeah. right here and having this conversation. Did you have that, that crisis of, of, you know, what, what can I actually do now that the S has hit the F? Yeah. Well, fortunately, I, I did the march, went to, yeah. UCB was having a sign designing thing, so I came I came ready, and I made some great posters, and I <laughs> went to the march, and then I went to another march, and then I, you know, so that you feel better when you're surrounded by yeah. a few thousand of your new closest friends. I mean, it impacts me. I'm 64, so I'm right in that sweet, sweet spot before Medicare kicks mm. in. And so just on a healthcare basis and on these ridiculous tax cuts, which are embarrassing. Yeah. It's so embarrassing that the Paradise Papers come out the same time as this and you see exactly whom they're cutting the taxes for and how little they already pay and why. And it's just, I wouldn't say stressful, it's distressing, it's disheartening mm -hmm. to think that just about every single thing that I was taught as a gullible child about this country is most of it was never true and the rest of it isn't true anymore and we're really in some cross between idiocracy and 
you know, a totalitarian state. The first time Obama was elected, people were seriously having a conversation about whether this was the end of racism and how everything was okay now. Yeah, well, that it's just kind of the same thing that happened after the Civil War. I'm going to say this about that. Let's We could say the Civil War and we can also say the New Deal. It's not racism, but it's also the whole slapback thing that things were accomplished and we're looking a little better. Yeah. But the powers that that not be, but that had been and were just slightly out of power, but still powerful, were incensed and were able to bide their time until they could regroup and fight back. I mean, these are the same forces that are union busting, that got rid of the international workers of the world unite. I mean, hey, let's start a war so that doesn't happen. I mean, they they will stop at nothing, and they have stopped at nothing, and they're right now stopping at pretty much nothing. And it's it's the same with racism, because this country was built on enslaving people from Africa and Every single person in this country who isn't black and Native American people, also put to the side in a different category, has benefited from that, no matter where we come from or when we got here. I mean, my parents and my grandparents all came from Eastern Europe mm-hmm. and Russia, and like Galicia, Hungary, Ukraine, which was part of Russia, lots of stories, pogroms smuggled out of the country in a wash tub i mean it wasn't like they we went were, through some shit yeah we weren't yeah. we weren't that privileged but getting here i mean it was a whole different i mean there's a whole different level and i am so about reparations i mean let's hope that we can get to have that conversation again because i it's very my mom who's 87 she's all about reparations we talk about it a lot and she used to work for the irs she really understands taxes i mean we figured out how to do it already it would be very very cool are you finding an outlet for your politics in comedy sure i do improv and i host a weekly improv show and i improvise at the show and also i don't like to do hosting bits so much but things leak out a little bit especially if something untoward has happened and that's Mm. true every week now it definitely comes out and there's a there's a person who i love uh keisha zolar who is uh she has a great podcast with her husband uh, andrew called applying it liberally and Mm -hmm. she is on harold teams and she writes for the opposition she gave a an improv class last year that i took i was very happy to take it called social justice advanced study improv so it was it was really great to be in there with a a very eclectic mix of people because it's it's difficult sometimes to make things funny without being tedious and pedantic but also so many things that we took for granted of ways of speaking are no longer viable in this culture if you want to be a person of culture so that was part of the conversation was intersectionality yes absolutely yeah. yeah It's 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 funny that it seems like as as uh, as improv is is maturing as the UCB is maturing these classes are sounding more and more like graduate level courses. Yeah, some of them. Well, the advanced study yeah. classes, some of them are straight up technical about Harold's and yeah. the structure, but a lot of times they delve into areas of thought as well. They should because comedy has progressed from doesn't have to be crass.
<laughs> Although I can be crass, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so, Does it feel necessary, though, to compartmentalize from time to time? I mean, we do, obviously, if we're going to lead our lives and not go completely crazy, we need to tune stuff out. And sometimes it's good to just have comedy for comedy's sake. It doesn't always need to smack you on the face with politics. Well, I don't think it does. But when you have, like, one thing in my show, I really make an effort to book diverse yeah. teams. Every now and then, I look at the teams that people come and not every person from every team can come, but sometimes it's a little too white, a little mm -hmm. too male. And I'm like, okay, this is looking bad. I got to step it up more. I want everybody in my show. I want trans people. I want people from every nation. I want every age. That one's a tough one. I mean, I feel like even if I walk on a stage... That's already a political comment because there aren't that many really active improvisers in the scene that are in my age group who didn't age into it. Like yeah. that they may be out there, but they're emeritus. And I'm sort of in with the 2011 seeds. So I'm hanging with the 20 and 30 year olds. And, it, you know, it's interesting. When you started taking it, were there older people involved in the lower level classes and did they filter out or there just wasn't, there, there wasn't there, anyone there were even not, in your ballpark? There were not. And there may be another one or two, but they were never in, in my class yeah, until in yeah. advanced study. I think one class I took, there were two other people and that was a shock. Two out of, so that would be three of us out of 16. That was intense. I almost couldn't handle it. I think age is the icky diversity because it's hard to rally around and say we're going to form a core group when what you have in common, in common is age yeah. and also liking comedy. That may not quite be enough because we're all different. And anyway, what I have found is in general, the people that I saw there, they didn't like keep up with it as intensively. They yeah. just went to sketch or did other things, but I fell in love with improv and all I wanted to do was do improv. And I realized I'm not the top of anyone's, you know, draft picks to be on a house team. So I have to start my own show, which I did early on and it was a monthly show. But then in 2013, I started a weekly show and that's been good for me. I've been able to really keep a hand in and also know the upcoming people because I'm always, always booking. There isn't sort of an immediate sense of kinship when you see somebody, when you're like hanging out with a bunch of 21-year-olds and then you see somebody who's roughly your age range? I don't know. It depends on how into improv they are. If they're not like passionate about it, then yeah, we'll have a chit-chat, but I'm not that... If, if they don't prioritize it the same way I do, then probably not. Take me back to 2011, this Laurel conversation, when you were looking back and figuring out what you had spent your time on. What pushed you into improv? Well, strangely, and this is actually, I go into some of this material in my show, but probably I'll be more tedious and long-winded and less funny about it That's here because... The fun of a podcast. Yes. You don't have to make them laugh. <laughs> um, I've had a life full of a lot of different things that don't fit together. It's like puzzle mm. pieces from different jigsaws and you get them and how does this fit together? Yeah. So I started hoop dance because hoop dance is the foundational source of all good things in my life. I started Explain hoop what hoop dance is. Okay. Well, I don't know if any of your listeners have ever heard of the hula hoop sure. by Whammo in the yep. 50s. It's a good place to start. Yeah. And... um. 
that's all I knew about it. But something happened, and I found out later what it was. In Boulder, Colorado, in about 1990, there was a concert by the String Cheese Incident, and they put some irrigation tubing together into some big hoops, black irrigation tubing, and they threw them out from the stage. And where those hoops were caught, the culture changed because some of the people that caught them, they didn't just say, oh, this is fun and leave. They got into it and made a whole new hoop dance because, you know, originally those 50s, 60s, 70s, it was mostly about how long can you keep rotating around the waist and how many can you do? We'll pile on, you know, a hundred of them or whatever, but that's not dance. That's hula hooping. These people started to dance with the hoop and that's what I was interested in because I used to dance and then I had a dance injury and I couldn't dance anymore. So for 10 years, I was pretty cranky because... I needed to dance, actually, and I I saw something online. A fellow wrote a piece that wasn't even about this, but one little sentence. I went up to my roof in my apartment building in the East Village, and I looked, and all these rooftops around me, there were women hula hooping. So I um, Googled around a little bit and looked and said, oh, okay, maybe I can dance without having to leap and pivot and do floor work and whatever. I can kind of stand mostly on both feet, stand, walk, this, that, and yet dance. It took a while, but that's what happened. I mean, at first there's a big, you know, barrier to entry is, uh, at the time I was cranky, I was fat, I did not have high self-esteem. Not that I ever do. I don't now either, but I feel better <laughs> about myself somehow. And the people that I was uh, taking the workshop with, it was their first time in New York, and I told them, I've never hooped before. And they made me a hoop that came up to my sternum. So it was a big hoop. And that's better because the perimeter, it takes yeah. longer for the part that's in contact with you to to come back around again. So th- th- I mean, this is different than the plastic. Hula-hoop. Yeah. Well, you can make them any size. There are three main types of material. Th- this irrigation tubing is nice because it mm. has a bounce to it and it's heavy. My favorite hoop is made out of that, but it's smaller. I th- think my first hoop might have been 50 inches, as much as 50 inches, and now my main go-to hoop is 33 inches. So that's a. There's also HD. PE is a kind of uh, plastic, and also polypro. Those are faster, more brittle, lighter weight. So, I mean, you have a lot of choices. Those are like the Olympic style. Well, they're all, I mean, people have choices yeah. of what they want to do, taped or non-taped. I mean, there's a whole, I mean, once you get into this culture, it, it nerds out just as much as any <laughs> other subculture does. Um, there are LED hoops that light up, and you know there are mini hoops that you just manipulate with the hands, and then that becomes a Venn diagram thing with contact juggling and other kinds of juggling and prop manipulation. And there's, I mean, it's a whole world of prop manipulation out there. There must be a really big overlap in the Venn diagram of hooping and Burning Man. Totally. Um, also, hooping and circus arts, hooping mm. and belly dance, hooping and yoga, and hooping and Again, other flow arts like different forms of juggling and what is the other? Staff. I mean, staff is a very amazing thing. It's a long, like a long, heavy staff. You roll it over the body in different ways. And also fans, you know, fire hooping. And all of these things can be done with fire and all that stuff. So I, 
I'm basically into jamming out with one hoop or two if I'm doing the hand, just off body, just kind of jamming to music. I don't need to get into all the, you know, bells and whistles. And there are some that I won't because, again, I used to love dance and I danced and danced, but there are things I just cannot and will not do anymore because my body is in a different phase of its life and, and some things are over already, mm. but but I can dance now. So the hoop got me into improv because someone I met and was Facebook friends with posted a short, like a five-minute video online that was a five-minute PowerPoint presentation by a fellow named Mike Subletsky in Washington, D.C., and the thesis of this PowerPoint was how long-form improvisational comedy precepts will help you have more happiness and success in life than you know what you learn in b school grad school this that blah 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 and it was an interesting fun video and i watched it and then i watched it again and then i watched it a third time and took some notes like bring a brick not a cathedral that's a good way to you know partner and brainstorm with someone and then i said what i watched myself taking notes to this dumb video and i said well i live in chelsea I've seen that there's a theater called UCB. Yeah. I know it exists. Maybe I should go take a class. And I did. You were taking it just to kind of figure your shit out, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, well, yeah, my yeah. whole life is about figuring my shit out. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. Yes. And, I mean, I started out as a very, like, in a big hurry, and I'm very smart, but I I wasn't smart enough to deal with what happens when you, you know, get a too early start off the blocks and start running in some direction you don't even know. What does that mean? Well, I got too early a start. I graduated school young and I was not mature. So, and that's not just a school, it's every school. Graduating, you know, elementary school, I was 11 and graduating junior high school or what's now called middle middle school, I was 14 and I was 16 when I graduated high school mm. and 19 when I graduated college. And it seems it's like, like you would have a head start. Not really, because yeah. all the choices that I'm making all during that time are immature choices. Mm. And in the process of even just that little flurry, I kind of lost myself. So I was doing things not because those were the right things for me to do, sitting down and giving it some considered thoughts, but just what was expedient or seemed like the an okay next thing to do. So I really wasn't, I became not accomplished. I became a person who was over the surface of a lot of different things and learned about a lot of different things, but not in a way that created any mastery because I wasn't that into any of them. So you were just kind of an an academic? No, not even. I was a dope. I mean, there's just no way to get around (laughs) it. I went to art school and then I graduated right into the 1973 for recession. Mm -hmm. And I guess I finally got a really horrible little part-time job doing graphic design for a one-man ad agency. And he was a weirdo. And oh my gosh. I mean, one day he said something about, well, when I come in to Grand Central Station on the train, all the Jews sit together on the train. And I was like my So he was a racist weirdo. I don't know if he was racist, but let me tell you, I had I mean, for a lowly employee, I had a freaking shit fit. I mm. put a swastika on his door. I said, this is unacceptable. I just went, went for it. I yeah. went for it. I was like, what do I care? I mean, I was living in a, an apartment that cost me $155 a month. 
It was uh, exciting times. They were filming Serpico partly right outside the building I lived Mm -hmm. in because I lived in the rear house of the building on West 10th Street. I've been there recently. I finally got access inside to see what it... uh, They've ruined it. It used to have French windows. Now it has ugly aluminum windows. It used to have a little cute cast concrete little lion and a brick wall. And now that... I mean, they messed it up, but you could see it in Serpico because the scene where he's this woman peeks over the fence at him having espresso in his backyard in the village and she goes i love your garden that was they were filming that when i was living there in fact i thought that was natural conversation so until the third time i heard it (laughs) (laughs) and they filmed a lot on the block because the sixth precinct is um you weren't taking any of these jobs too seriously no not really because Again, I wasn't, I didn't feel confident about my portfolio. I didn't go to art school because that was my burning desire. Mm. I went to art school because my mom said, you'll never make it in an academic, in a four-year academic school. I had good, good-ish grades, but that was mostly high test scores, but my study habits were abysmal. I'll give you that, I'll give her that, but... um she said, well, a friend's son or a friend's cousin's son or whatever is going to this school. Why don't you apply to that? And that's the only school I applied to. So you thank went to God art I school because in. a friend's cousin's son went yeah, to art school? kind of. And I mean, even when I made my portfolio, it was not high level like art supplies. I liked art. I used to paint and do stuff, but I liked a lot of things. That I mean, my real passion in life has been dance and theater, but I didn't approach those, you know, yeah. so I did this portfolio out of pretty much construction paper and elmer's glue and different ridiculous i mean some macaroni yeah i did the macaroni spray painted gold i did that whole thing i it's amazing that i got it but once i got out you know i painted but i felt so i didn't have any confidence in myself like instead of just bullying through and saying i'm gonna do this because this is my thing and i have a fire in my belly and i'm gonna make it work instead i'd be painting saying uh you're an idiot. You don't know how to paint. What a moron you are. So that it's hard to like make any headway in life when you have the, the peanut gallery right inside yourself throwing peanut shells at you. And then I got into Wall Street. So that's a very clear, you know, that's a, that's an easy leap. I mean, most people do that after art school anyway. You had the dual problem of having self-doubt, but it sounds like you also didn't have any particular passion for making art that way. Right. That Well, that's it. I did have a passion for something else, and yeah. I forgot it for a number of years due to just life. Hap- did it not even occur to you that you could possibly make a career out of dance? Literally forgotten about dance hmm. from about 13 or 14 years old until... Well, in art school, I started hanging out with this wonderful friend who's a gay guy, and we used to go to um, the gay dance clubs, and so I got my dance on that way. And you had that your was, full art school experience. Yeah, oh, art school. It, art school was great. Yeah. I mean, it really was. I loved school. I especially Did you go to the SVA? first. Was it here I went to Parsons. Oh, okay. And at the time, it was up on East Fifty Third Street. Mm-hmm. It was right near the United Nations School. Um, it, it was a whole different. It was this cool. Um, industrial building and it was small i mean there were 30 people in my department in my graduating class it was a small beautiful school and while i was there the new school bought them but the other thing is they didn't at the time have a fine arts um curriculum so i was in communications design which is graphics and the first year was all pretty fine arts oriented and i loved 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 it and then it got into applied arts, and I was a lot less in love 
but there was a lot of inertia. I mean, yeah. at, at that time, my father was dying of cancer. I mean, there, you know, life can be confusing. And I was very easily confused because I put myself in a position of being confused. And yeah. I was. I moved on, went into Wall Street, spent 12 years there. And that, I, I, I was invested in it because, thought, because I thought, I've got to make money. Nobody else is going to be taking care of me. I've got to take care of me. And I need money. I was also invested on an ego basis because I, I was trading stocks and I was a market maker and not too many women doing that at that time. So it felt like, oh, what do you do? What do you do at a cocktail party? Oh, I'm a market maker and foreign securities trader. Oh, you know? yeah. So I was invested in it that way. But culturally, it was, it couldn't have been more inappropriate for me. At the time, it was perfectly legal for a guy to sit across the desk and say, I'm not going to pay you as much as I pay Henry. Henry's got a wife and, and a couple of kids and a mortgage. What do you have? And that was legal. Talking the early days of Gordon Gecko almost oh, here, yeah. right? This you is know, really it was the kind rise of, of... It was kind of like that. You were there right in the belly of the beast, it yeah. sounds like. It sounds like you went in that direction because you were, you know, you were an art student. You were doing something that, you know, might have, even while rents were considerably cheaper in New York at the time, it was still probably difficult to make a living doing that. So you just went completely in the opposite direction. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't believe, I mean, really, I had a huge lack of confidence because it wasn't my thing. Yeah. And then while I was in Wall Street, I rediscovered dance because my youngest brother took me to a concert, which was Dinizulu and his dancers and drummers which was all African polyrhythms and all these traditional African dances. And it moved me from every part of my body and soul. And I was like, I've got to do this. But I thought I was too old. I was 28 and a half years old. That must be the first time anyone has ever uttered the phrase, when I was in Wall Street, I discovered dance on a podcast before. Yeah, well, expect a lot of new <laughs> phrases. As I say, my yeah. life makes no sense. I mean, I feel used to it because I've lived it, but it doesn't. You thought you were too old to pursue professionally or to just well, pursue it in any at way? All. And, and really? that's because I was smoking cigarettes. I had yeah. started smoking at yeah. 13. And at that point, I couldn't like run for a bus without my heart just pounding and my parents smoked. Also, my father had had polio. So I was used to the idea of kids running around and grownups sitting around, sitting around and mm -hmm. having coffee and a cigarette or a scotch on the rocks and a cigarette and talking. And that was the way grownups behaved. And I thought, well, I'm old now. I'm 28 and a half and I'm a grownup. And I said something like that in the, and my brother took me, but he also, there were some of his friends and I said, this is so great. I wish I could do it. I'm too old. Yeah, and I'll be dead his, soon. Yeah, right. And one of his friends said, I'm 31 and <laughs> I do it. So I went and I went yeah. to this amazing class. And the first time I did it, going across the floor, I really did think my heart was pounding, mm. pounding, pounding because, you know, yeah. I wasn't in great athletic sure. shape at that point. And then I got a little fever. And a few days later, I took a puff of a cigarette and I felt a little like a pain in my chest and I put the cigarette out and I didn't say a word to anyone and I stopped smoking and I started dancing and stopped smoking. And for the next 10 years, physiologically, I got younger every year, not just my mind, but my body actually got younger every year between 28 and 38 years old.
where were you dancing? I was dancing in classes and in lecture demonstrations. And if anyone would have me in any kind You're of show. literally anywhere you could dance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I took class with Lavinia Williams. She was one of the members of Catherine Dunham's original company. And I also took class with Laura Mill Machado, Machado in um, Afro-Brazilian, with T. Ross and Horton Technique, and with a couple of great people, Phil Black and Eddie Wright um, for jazz and tap. I took ballet with Lavinia and with some other people as well, just for core technique, mm-hmm. not, you know, I wasn't going to be a ballet dancer, but I just loved it. I danced 10 to 15 hours a week, and I just what became a dance freak and during the day i worked in wall street and at night and on weekends i danced you weren't going to be a ballet dancer but did you think you had figured it out well i knew that i was but i was way i hope you can say a naughty word oh, on, we've said a few oh great because usually i'm not so usually i'm not so circumspect i just let it rip but Go anyway um i was pretty chicken shit at that point i had a, mm. an apartment and a job and a paycheck and i hmm. just you know i couldn't see Again, that voice, now the voice was saying, well, you're pretty good, maybe, but you're too old and you're too fat. You're not a dancer. You can't be a dancer. Nobody's going to hire you as a dancer. There's self-doubt, but there's also just the practical concern of, I don't want to lose my apartment. I don't want to you know, quit my day job. All of that could go away. Right. So you could see it one way or, yeah. or you could see it the other, but the bottom line was, I didn't do it. I just danced on the side. And then things happened in my life. I wound up leaving Wall Street anyway because it really wasn't right for me. And I had sort of gotten myself into a real tizzy with a very stupid dysfunctional relationship. And it was easy to see that I got all wrapped up in that relationship because I almost saw it as an escape route to be out of Wall Street and not doing what I'm doing. I didn't like the whole thing anymore. I just didn't like it. It's kind of like Lost in America, but without the gambling part. Mm -hmm. I just left and I assumed my life would, my true destiny would find me and it would all happen very passively. All I had to do was say, I'm ready. And that real destiny would appear, which is not what happened. I spent about 10 or 15 years just doing one dumb thing and moving to the next and even dumber thing. And some okay things in there. I did some painting. I gave an art show or two or three. I was involved in some other art shows. I lived in Europe a little while, but I was basically bumming around one way or another. And then, as I say, when I started hoop dancing in the end of 2007, so that's like almost 10 years it's almost 10 years to the day since I was Googling that, you know, why are these women hula hooping on the roofs in the East Village? All of a sudden, my life started to have more foundation because hmm. I was ready. I had saved up some money again because also financially my life has gone save, 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 and then spend it down to zero and then save, 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 and spend it down yeah. to zero because once you're emotionally immature, always you're emotionally immature and I just well fortunately I haven't spent it down to zero this time close but I just drew the line and I'm also older so Mr. Government is helping me with a small check every month that helps out a lot yeah I mean if not now when is the thing though so this time I didn't say oh you're too old you're too fat and nobody because it's like at this point I take it as a given now it's like I don't really give it to him 
I am too old and I'm too fat and I'm too this and I'm not enough this and I'm not enough that, but I'm fucking going to do it this time. That's it. You know, and if I fail, at least I tried once in my life to do something. I'm doing it. What constitutes a wasted life then? It's, is it just, is it never figuring out what your calling is? Or, you know, a lot of people, most people probably move from job to job. I did figure out my calling. I was six years old when I figured yeah. it out. I was kind of thwarted yeah. and then I thwarted myself in different ways. And the next thing you know, it's like I'm not making any decisions that are based on who I am and what I want. So a wasted life then is not heeding that calling. Yeah. I mean, not being true to yourself. And I'm, I was mm. like a, an expert of not being true to myself. In fact, it didn't feel like that because by the time I got into Wall Street, my decision making processes were more like external. I'll do this because it makes sense. Because if I listen to my inner voices, there were none. It was empty. There was nothing. I, like, I just couldn't, there's nothing I really ever wanted to do. It's like I forgot. I forgot who I was, and I was walking around just making arbitrary decisions. I mean, there's a little trauma in there. You don't get to be like that yeah. without having been deterred in various ways in your life. Do you think that's common, though? Do you think a lot of people find that early in life and it just goes away? Or is it a case of a lot of people never quite figuring out what it is or figuring out what it is later in life? Well, the lens I see this stuff through is that it's very common for people to be deterred from mm -hmm. expressing who they are because they have experiences that push them away from themselves. And like the right now, this whole hashtag me too thing, I'm, I'm really all about that because, uh, of course, yes, hashtag me too. And that's obviously logical because it's hashtag yes, every woman. And to be honest, hashtag a lot of guys mm -hmm. as well and depending on how it like how bad the experience is how old you were when this happened or started happening because maybe with some people including myself it's more than a one shot yeah pardon the pun or you know whatever I, was that a pun? No. no. I, I, I mean, in kind of like now my brain's weird, trying to like, yeah. connect the dots. <laughs> and I don't like where it's going, but continue. Yeah, exactly. I'm just gross. I told you I could be crass. I do not lie. I mean, technically um, anything can be a euphemism if you yeah, really put yeah, your mind to it. Exactly. Well, get my mind out of the gutter. Okay. So it really makes it hard to self-actualize when you take on the weight of the world, take on all the guilt, mm -hmm. because, you know, certainly for many years, I just thought, I didn't even think I was spent my time wondering, why did I do this? Why yeah. did I let this person do this? Why did I go back and let that person do this? Why am I, why am I doing this? And it was, uh, it was extremely debilitating. And I didn't tell my family. And also, you know, even after I had it was my family wasn't a big proponent of psychotherapy or anything at the time, much the contrary. But um, people don't even know or realize just it wears away at you. Mm. And, you know, I'm not going to blame every single thing on it, but I, I know my life would have been different if, you know, certain things had happened differently. And these were extremely formative experiences for me. So the fact is, though, it may be taking me a lot longer, but I didn't let it stop me. So I think it's a, you know, positive story yeah. in that 
you know, there certainly were times that I considered suicide, but don't let the don't let the bastards get you down. You yeah. know, you end up getting too good at compartmentalizing, and, and when that happens, it's really hard for you to identify the root of the problem. Yeah, or even you know the root, but there's an emptiness mm. inside, like where your where your the real love and what you were put on this earth for, where that used to be. There's basically static. You know, you're just it's not tuning in because there's a lot of interference, and that interference is trying to figure out why you've done these self-destructive things and why you continue to do these self-destructive things. So yeah, like my whole life has been about figuring things out and just putting the pieces together. So obviously there's a lot of comedy embedded in all of this. It's just, you know, this is where comedy comes from. Dance and comedy, there's, I'm sure some overlap between the two, but they're, they're different things. The, the thing that you felt like really was your calling was the the dance aspect when did comedy click into place for you well amazingly it was at every every class when you take an improv class there's usually a class show one class show in the core Mm -hmm. curriculum and it was at the class show of my 201 class show sometimes there are two whatever i forget but anyway this one particular show speaking of trauma i initiated a beat reconstructing but in a comedic way because a lot of the particulars were different. One of the most traumatic and bad aspects of this series of events that I had, you know, experienced. And it got tremendous laughs. Tremendous laughs. You channeled some trauma from your past on yes. stage? Yeah, I, I constructed a scenario which was based on a personal experience and on stage, it became really funny. In my life, it was not funny. Without going into the personal experience, what happened on stage? Well, I just lined up a bunch of people. Yeah. And I was, in this instance, because it was the second beat of something that had already happened, I was like an older woman who was very, really wanted to have sex with a bunch of people. In my actual life, that was not the case in either age or desire. Or quantity. Uh no, the quantity was actually okay. accurate. That's why it was pretty fucking dramatic. I'm trying not to do details because, A, I don't want to trigger people no. with the yin-yang, number one, and number two, it's really yeah, yeah, depressing yeah. and bad. Yeah. It's really not good. But it got a huge, huge laugh. And I, I mean, the fact that I could turn every really bad thing that ever happened mm. to me into comedy gold, the fact that that was a possibility, I just went, I need to do this. At what point did it occur to you that you were doing something real that was based on something that had happened Oh, I, I knew it specifically. I mean, yeah. I, I, in other words, here's the thing. Like, if you had designed that thing, it wouldn't have been as funny because mm. you wouldn't have understood what you were doing. I knew exactly what I was doing. I constructed something that was based on my life. You don't not know that. But it was funny. That's what was so great about Mm. it. You can actually take the worst things in the world and make them funny and make them a source of pleasure for yourself and other people. That is alchemy. That's incredible. Is that sense of openness, is that something that came naturally to you or is that something that improv and and dance opened up? I think it came naturally to me. But one thing that I've noticed, I'm very closed down and yet open. Like I could tell somebody everything in detail, but still it won't touch the core of Mm. me in a way. It's a strange dichotomy. I've done it. I mean... 
completely to, confessional. To prove a point once, I, yeah. well, to prove a point once, because somebody was saying that you know being naked is erotic, and I was saying it is not, and I actually took off all my clothes. Say this is not erotic. This is just a body. It's not sexy. That's not where sexiness comes uh-huh. from. I mean, it's weird. I can, I can, I can go there sometimes. Yeah, but it, catharsis doesn't always come with confession, and right. that's a problem. Yeah, because it's. I mean, I've spent too much time in my life, especially in my much younger life, ruminating. So it's sort yeah. of like. Stewing. I've been on this. I, it's it's just so uh, you know it's not going to be released in one little cathartic yeah. moment. I pr- probably in a, a thousand cathartic moments aren't going to make a dent. So it's this this tendency towards rumination has created a it's like a stagnant area, and that's another thing. Comedy can actually begin to lighten yeah. that. So between hoop dance, yoga, comedy, I'm really I'm having fun and hopefully giving fun and pleasure to other people. But I think I'm also slowly, slowly getting better. And also, I mean, I'm 64. It's about time I start having more emotional maturity. I'm working on it. I mean, it's not, it doesn't come easy. I have a, I have a theory that any mother who's a decent mother is more emotionally mature than I am by the time her kid is about, well, I have Hmm. a niece and she just had a baby recently. So her daughter is about eight months old, so right about now, she just got more mature yeah. than I am. There's also a difference, though, in having something be honest and true to yourself that doesn't necessarily make it confessional. It sounds like you might be moving more in a confessional direction. I mean, would you characterize the show that you're doing now as being that? Oh, no. And I will say it was in its first draft, yeah. It's it, which was terrible. I mean, first of all... <laughs> Was it a little too navel-gazy? I will say this. The name of the festival is Solo Com. That stands for Solo Comedy. It's not Solo Drum. That Mm. either stands for Pass the Drama Mean or Solo Drama. It's not drama. It's comedy. And and the thing is that that thing I did in the graduate, uh, in the the, uh, class show for the 201 show, it's not so easy to figure out 25 minutes of that when, well, what happened was I, I got into the show and it has to be new work. So I started thinking about it and thinking about my life and thinking about what do I want to say, dredged up a lot of bad stuff. And I think I had to just write it out. I had to write some stuff that was not good and that could not stay in. in. Yeah. But as I wrote a few more drafts and then didn't write and I was doing some stuff at open mics to try to, you know, tease out what I've got to find a way in that isn't just a total fucking drag, which is a show I would not want to see or do. Total fucking drag would be a good name for that show, however. Yeah, that would be cool, especially if there was drag in it and that would work. (laughs) So it has to be a little punny or it's not funny. I found some ways in. So it's not, it's really a show that touches lightly upon certain aspects of being a person that maybe has been a disadvantage socially from time to Mm -hmm. time but with a light touch and funny because it's a comedy show so it's it's not going i mean as i said at the beginning it's going to be a lot less funny the way i say it to you yeah and some of this stuff like the worst of it i either doesn't exist in the show or is just embedded in just one little sentence like i may say that it's solo com not solo drum 
thing. It's just embedded in that rather than making it like an essay about the dysfunction of society and, you know. <laughs> a lecture. <laughs> a lecture. Yeah. Or my director or the fellow who's really helping me in directing this uh, has suggested that I should actually write a book. I don't know. I mean, I certainly have enough material, but then most people do. I mean, my life is really ridiculous, though, so maybe I have yeah. slightly more material. It sounds like you're developing at least an interesting way to tell it, and that's really the key yeah. of writing a memoir. Yeah, see, well, that's it. I mean, it's how do you tell it. Yeah. Is the That's the key question. And then what is the purpose of what you're doing? So if it's comedy, it has to be told in a way... And I think for myself, because I can get emotional, I had to get, like, write it out the wrong way a few times before I started, mm. you know, getting some clarity about what might work. You've been in the comedy community in, in some capacity for, you know, half more than half a decade at this point. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're doing a solo show, you've done these group shows, you've you obviously connected with, with uh, Chris Gethard at one point. Mm -hmm. So you're doing a TV show, which is great. Did you ever get over that sort of initial, they call it imposter syndrome, of just feeling like maybe you were out of place? I mean, especially, again, when you're dealing with all these 21-year-olds. Well, I think I have not gotten over it. No. In fact, doing this solo show made it flare up worse really? because I'm out here, you know, talking to people and I'm starting to think, why why does anyone want to talk to me? I don't know. Yeah. Why do people so care? What do yeah, I have why to do, say? Yeah. Or even do they care? Yeah. Maybe it only seems like they care. I mean, so it's sort of, but I have to, while I'm experiencing it, I also have to be letting it go and not just, okay, whatever. Because, you know, mind garbage is mind garbage and there's a lot of it. I happen to have a lot of it. And then you begin to recognize it as, you know, patterns of behavior or in Vedantic thought, it's called samskara, which is like the grooves of a record and you just the needle will naturally fall into that groove. That mm. groove's been being made for a long time and it doesn't make it true. It just makes it a groove that your mind naturally goes in. So one has to question one's reality sometimes because it's a construct. And if I'm looking at the, you know, obviously if I'm looking at things in a certain way, that's all I will see, you know, buy red shoes, and then you notice everybody's red shoes, that kind of thing. How did you connect with Chris initially? Well, I um, was an avid improv student, and uh, at the time he used to be on a team called the Stepfathers, and I loved that team, and I would go every single week, get there an hour early or more so that I could be in the first row, the front you row. You were an improv groupie? Yeah, well, not so much of like an improv <laughs> maniac, just yeah. like... It happens. Like, I wasn't the only one. I mean, yeah. when you first start doing improv and it's incredible and your mind is just blown at the possibilities and, and just these people are so great and... Yeah, it's electric so, when it's done well. Yeah, totally electric. So, and you get, like, either Death by Ruru, I really like them, and I... But somehow the stepfathers, there was a certain just light but very acerbic quality mm. to their improv, and I was like, yeah, I... Yeah, I love these people. I love what they do. I just love them. And so I was in the front row all the time. And Gethard also had a monthly show called The Chris Gethard Show, which I kind of wasn't seeing because it wasn't improv and I was all about improv. But I did see the last one where his dad was a guest. And then they went on public access. And I missed the first few, but I tuned into one, seeing it live on the internet on Ustream. And Gethard wasn't even there that night. That was Shannon O'Neill 
she initiated a new game she had made up called Snatch or Catch, which mm. is crazy. And I was like, okay, this is amazing. So you make some little comments. And I, I had a screen name, which I used a screen name from years before, like AIM or something like that. And, uh, the Carter administration. Yeah. So <laughs> exactly. So, uh, Gether didn't know it was me, but he really replied very nicely to a comment I made. And then I thought, wow, he's so nice. And this is just so good. Maybe I'll come and be an audience. Probably I'll talk about this in the show as well. So I went as an audience member, but about an hour or an hour and a half before the show was going to be on, Gether tweeted out, guest, musical guest is uh, Cat Come. They've got a flat tire on the Jersey Turnpike or something. So if you have any kind of musical instrument, bring it, because we're going to do kind of a build-a-band thing. And I brought some little meditation chimes, but I also brought a collapsible hoop, because I thought, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. yeah. Never yeah. know. Yeah. So when I got there, it was too crowded and hectic for that. So I did play. I got in the back of the build band with this guy who brought a triangle, and his triangle and my chimes were essentially the rhythm section of this band, which was so great. I also found out that day that Shannon O'Neill can juggle because, you know, she was juggling, and that was antic and wonderful. But at the end of the show, I went up together, and I had... A bag just like this one, like a little kind of messenger mm -hmm. bag. And I said, you know, for the future, I just want to let you know I have this. And I opened the bag and there were these eight uh, circles, which were plastic with aluminum things. And he's like, what is that? And I said, a hoop. And he got a little glint in his eye, <laughs> which I didn't understand. I found out later why that was, but a uh, glint in his eye. And he said, can you do that for an hour? And I said, absolutely. And he said, well, you can come on the show any week, which to me, any week meant every week, mm -hmm. because any week could mean every week if that's what you want to do. And I said, don't say it if you don't mean it, because I will. And I came the next week. And once again, there was no real room. So I wound up hoop dancing in between the cameras. So they had one little shot of me. But then, you know, at the end, they called me up. But the people who saw me were Chris Gathered and the panel. They saw the whole thing. And the next week, there was a place behind the panel for me to hoop dance. And then I hoop danced behind the panel for the next four years. And it was a life-transforming experience. Will you be happy if that's the thing you're remembered for, is hoop dancing sure. at Chris's show? I, I will, because it's, it's such positivity. I mean, yeah. I hoop dance in the park by the river. And children, grown-ups, Wall Street guys, homeless people students who are studying calculus, like whatever, like everyone except people who are super shut down and very much in their own like narcissistic yeah. thing, enjoy it and smile. And it's just something, I can be a pretty crabby person walking around New York. Mm -hmm. I am a native New Yorker. I have ideas about which side of the sidewalk is appropriate to walk Tell on. People have those giant umbrellas. Tells uh, me. Yeah. Okay. Or even <laughs> if you want to stop and talk. Yeah move to the side near the curb or the other side near the building. Don't do it right in the middle mm -hmm. of the, you know, all rules and ideas. And I can be pretty cranky. And so if it's just me talking, it could be like tedious, but it, by hoop dancing, I get to forget all that verbal stuff and just be in the moment and be doing a thing, which is magical because it's working with, with the laws of physics in a way that is pretty. And nice. And I can give that to people and have it for myself. So yeah, I would be thrilled to be 
have that be the biggest thing I've remembered for. I don't think these things are necessarily in conflict, but they are to some degree that you were somebody who was so full of self-doubt early on, but you didn't seem to have any reluctance to perform in front of people. Those things often tend to go hand in hand. Well, I that's I didn't really realize that about myself particularly until, well, one time years ago, I had an opportunity to give a talk to a large group of people I didn't know. And wow, I super felt comfortable mm. doing that. And I was like, wow, I mean, something about, I think my natural persona early on in my life was a person who was more confident than I actually wound up being. And the thing that hoop dance and being on a stage have in common is there's a separation. Like if you said, go dance by the river and move your body yep. in this way, that would not feel comfortable to me. But give me a hoop. Hmm. I've got a hoop between me and you. I have a natural perimeter. I have a vortex of energy around me. And a stage is the same thing. You have that. Once you have the cushion, I feel more comfortable on stage than I do in life. There again, this is Mimi Fisher. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Really fascinating. Was not super familiar with her, so thanks to Bianca at Shark Party for helping set that up. You can check out Mimi's show if you are listening to this in real time, or I guess, you know, as real time as podcasts get. You can go see her perform at The Pit, the People's Improv Theater here in New York City through the 30th. Her one-woman show is called Dessert Cart, and I guess, you know, just generally in and around the uh, New York City improv scene. So thanks so much to her for taking the time to do that. Thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are plenty of ways to support us. We would really appreciate it if you could rate us on iTunes wherever you get your podcasts. That's very helpful when it comes to booking people for the program. You can uh, like us on Facebook. If you've got any uh, little cash to send our way, we, that would be appreciated as well on Patreon, though I guess we are kind of reassessing how the Patreon pay structure works. So stay tuned for that. And any feedback, it's rlcast at gmail.com Com. Our Tumblr is rilcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to go over RIYL-related information. And I think that's about all I got for this week, so stick around because we'll be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.